0: Welcome to episode 186 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky and this podcast is for anyone else who likes going out under the stars. How was your your week, Shane? I guess we have a couple thank yous first. Uh,
1: yeah, yeah. Thanks to some new Patreon supporters, uh, S- uh, Stephen or Stefan um, and then uh, Chris as well. So Thank you very much, uh, for the, uh, the Patreon support and really, again, thank you to all of our supporters. It really does help. And, um, I think it's awesome.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much, uh, to the both of you and to everybody else who's made uh, some contributions. Um, you know, we do really appreciate it. So, uh, how was your week, Shane? Um,
1: pretty boring actually. So, you know, back, back to work, back to the grind. Yeah, Um, I hear you. And we're still not out of this cold snap. It's uh, It's been chilly, as you know. Yep. Um, we got a little bit of snow. Um, some people probably got more than a little, just depending on where you were situated with the way the wind blew. But um, yeah, and just again, not really any observing. It's been cloudy and cold, although uh, this coming week. It looks better for us. Uh, It's warming up and it's supposed to be clear. Unfortunately, we'll have a moon in the sky, but still I'll
0: be, I'll be out in the backyard regardless. Yeah. Sounds, sounds good. We had uh, quite a few nice uh, emails with regards to your, I want to say your meteorite collecting episode, the the meteorite collecting episode we did, but you're the meteorite collector. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah
1: yeah, um you know that that was kind of a weird episode in a way, right? It, it's not visual astronomy, so I wasn't sure what the uh, uptake would be on that one, but seems favorable. And uh, yeah, I, I I think it's a fun part of the hobby in a way. like it's an extension of uh, astronomy. and you know, I think because uh, like I think one of the things that draws visual observers to a telescope, is there's just a different feeling or a different connection when you're looking at an object through a telescope rather than looking at a photograph. And I think by extension, holding a meteorite is kind of a part of that experience. You know, it's a very intimate experience. And uh, therefore, I think it maybe has some appeal to, uh,
0: well, more than just visual astronomers,
1: astronomers, but certainly, certainly visual folks.
0: Yeah, and uh, sort of on that, uh, our... Chef Ozzy had, uh, had a, I guess, a question and a, and a comment. He said, uh, does the snow on the ground mess with the viewing? So they had quite a bit of snow down in the area he's in. And he was wondering how snow can mess with, uh, you know, with, with observing. Or does it have any impact on observing? And then he had added that, uh, uh, that Shane, you could be a motivational speaker <laughs> in that episode on meteorites. Uh, makes me want to go out and search for some. So <laughs> what do you- what are your thoughts on the, on the snow's impact on observing?
1: It absolutely does impact observing, um, you know, snow is white, it's exceptionally reflective and it reflects a lot of the light pollution that's around you. And, you know, an example is in my backyard in the summertime, uh, when there's no snow at night, when there's no moon, it's dark. Like, you know, you, you would need a light to see what's in the corners of the backyard and all of that kind of stuff. Um, in the winter time, you don't need any lights. Like you can just go out in the backyard and it's no big deal. Uh, similarly, you know, if you go for a walk outside, even outside of the city, uh, in the winter time, that snow reflects, you know, any light that's out there and it makes it bright enough that often I don't need a flashlight anywhere that I go. And, uh, as such, you know, it does, I I don't think the skies are quite as dark you know, uh, in the Mm -hmm. winter time, because the snow is reflecting a lot of light upwards. So I don't know what your thoughts are on that, Chris, but that's my opinion.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree with all that. What what about on like the stability of the skies? Do you think it has any impact on, on how stable the sky is, skies as well, or does it have any, Mm -hmm. any impact on that? I
1: don't, I don't think the snow does. Um, I think what can happen is if the air temperature is cool enough. Um, and I mean like really cold, you probably need to be hitting the minus 40s. Um, although somebody will probably correct me on this, um, if it gets cold enough, you get a, a merger of you know one or two of the uh, layers of atmosphere. You know, because as you gain altitude, the air gets cooler. So if the ground air is cold enough, it sort of merges with the next layer, and then essentially you're looking through one less layer, right? Of, of temperature change and, and potential uh, impacts on seeing. So does snow affect, uh, the, the actual seeing? I don't think so, but the air temperature can, but you know, if it's that cold, you're probably not doing a lot of observing anyway. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That sounds good. Um, and Clark sent, uh, sent a nice email on, uh, on the meteorite episode and, uh, shall I read it?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, I I think it's pretty neat. And, uh, we did have Clark on a previous episode, Clark and Randall, um, mm-hmm. talking about the Galileo telescope and, and a few other things. So it was, uh, I really enjoyed this email. I'll let you, I'll let you take over.
0: Yeah. And, uh, Clark is a good friend of mine. So we spent a lot of nights observing together when, uh, when I lived in Ontario. So, uh, anyway, Clark writes, uh, I enjoyed the meteorite episode. It made me uh, really think about some of the things that I've noticed attached is a photo I took from the upper deck of a cruise ship. Well, my wife and I were uh, were cruising in September uh, of 2014. I said he took the image on September 13th, and he said uh, they were out on the Pacific, and he says that my attempt to capture a beautiful late sunset didn't turn out too well. My point-and-shoot digital camera sent the ISO very high to compensate for the low light, and this made the image very grainy. He said, I took the shot. Immediately afterwards, I heard ooze and ahs. Uh, from various groups of, of people around the deck. It was a very bright fireball that broke up as it headed roughly west. And uh, some people thought it was a flare. He said, I took two more photos of the sunset after the meteorite had vanished. It wasn't until I checked my first shot that I noticed I actually captured the meteorite without even knowing it. So that's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Then he goes on to say the exposure was automatically set by the camera to one eighth of a second. The meteorites or the meteor's reflection can be seen in the water. And he said, I was shooting through a glass wall that led to, and that made some strange reflections. And then he said, uh, this was the departure date of the cruise ship uh, heading up to Alaska. And it was there for a few days uh, before he had enough uh, internet connection and uh, realized that uh, many hundreds of people had reported the meteorite in both Canada and the U.S. So that's pretty cool. Yeah,
1: um, I, I love those types of stories um, because often these really bright meteors or meteorites will have uh, a number of people that see them. And if if you are doing any kind of photographic work around one of these observations, even if you don't think you've seen it or, or captured it in your photos, it might be worth a second look because you just you never know what the camera can pick up. And uh, I think it's pretty cool that. That Clark got that on the water, you know, where I think probably hundreds of those observations were all from land. So that's pretty neat.
0: Yeah. And the the other story that he mentioned was uh, a meteorite that was found by a golfer. He says the, the other story is about a meteorite that was found by a golfer in Kitchener, Ontario on July 12th, 1998. The golfer heard something hit the ground uh, at the sixth tee and he immediately picked up the rock. It was a meteorite. The golf course is only about two kilometers from Clark's house. So um, maybe uh, next time he says, <laughs> yeah. um, and then there's a plaque in the registration area of the golf course uh, on permanent display uh, with a full scale replica of, of the meteorite. He included uh, uh, some photos of that too, which was, which was pretty cool. I, I hadn't, I hadn't recalled that one exactly, but uh, that's, that's pretty amazing that uh, I mean, that's almost like a hole in one. That's almost better than a hole-in-one. <laughs> oh, it's way better than a hole.
1: Well, at least for me, it would be better than yeah. a hole-in-one. Um, and that was a pretty good chunk of meteorite. Like, it was a decent size. Um, it looked like you know,
0: softball if, size, wasn't it? Or? Yeah, I would say that's Maybe pretty that accurate,
1: big. which, like... Hard, I, hard
0: to tell in the photo.
1: Yeah, yeah, but it, it's certainly bigger than any of the ones that I have. And, um, you know, if it is about a softball size, that would be worth a, a fair amount of money, I would assume.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, very cool.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure if there's too many uh, other instances like that around, but if people know of like their own sort of local history on meteorites that have come down, um, certainly we'd love to hear about those. That's pretty cool. Yeah.
1: And, and, and like this particular story, I think is, um, is, is like a very rare story where, you know, the, the, recovery of the meteorite was by the person that heard it fall. <laughs> you know, So like this thing was probably on the ground for no more than a few minutes before this person picked it up. And, um, you know, one thing, one thing I didn't mention, uh, on the meteorite episode that some people wonder about is like, if there is a fresh fall, how long do you have to wait for it to cool off or to become safe to uh, recover?
0: Mm.
1: And the answer is it's immediate. You don't, you don't have to worry about uh, uh, temperatures at that point. Um, it, they'll reach a very high temperature in the atmosphere uh, upon entry. But once they're in our atmosphere, uh, the cooling begins very fast. You, you know, like they're, they're moving through cold air at a very high rate of speed. They're metal, so they're a good conductor of temperature. Uh, or they have a, you know, a lot of metal in them. So, you know, it conducts temperature fairly well. And uh, by the time they reach ground, um, they're cool enough to touch.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, uh, that's really neat. I think the Simpsons did an episode on that. Oh, really? <laughs> well, like there was a episode where a meteor or a comet or something was going to hit the earth. And then Homer made this proclamation that it'll probably just burn up in the atmosphere and leave something the size of a head of a Chihuahua. And then they're all standing there watching it come in and then it comes in and it sort of bounces along the ground and there's a chihuahua there and it's about the size of the head of a chihuahua. Anyway, kind of reminding me of that.
1: There's a, there's a Simpsons episode for everything in life.
0: Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. Um, we had lots of, uh, feedback from, uh, from the the sketch that we received on the James Webb space telescope. So just refresh our viewers on, on that sketch that we had from Eric.
1: Yeah, so Eric is a uh, RASC member in Calgary, and uh, we've talked about Eric uh, a few times on, on the podcast. He has the uh, suitcase Dobsonian and uh, does a lot of observing. And one of the things that he attempted was to visually observe the James Webb Space Telescope as it's traveling to its L2 orbit. Um, now keep in mind that I think this James Webb telescope, is it even the size of half of a tennis court? Like, I'm not sure it's, it's quite small. It's
0: it's like a tennis court or, or so now that it's all anyway, it's, it's not. A massive object. It's big. No.
1: No. And, and and anyway, um uh Eric tried once, I think and failed and then on New Year's Eve night, so this would have been actually the now the morning of January 1st because it was just after midnight. Uh him and a friend went uh to the local observatory, the the RASC observatory and I think they have a C14, uh, yeah. a Celestron 14 inch Cassegrain. And uh the two of these folks decided to see if they could find and track the James Webb telescope. Um, now uh, at, at this point in time, it was about 750,000 kilometers away from earth, which is roughly twice the distance, uh, of the moon. Uh, so it's a long ways away and again, it's about the size of a tennis court. So quite small. Um, And I think it was around magnitude 14-ish were Eric's estimates. But anyway, what's amazing is Eric and his friend observed it and plotted it over the course of about an hour and a half or two hours as it moved uh, against the background stars. Um, So Eric sent us a sketch. Um, With his permission, we tweeted it out from uh, our actual astronomy uh, Twitter account and it's been by far <laughs> our most popular tweet that we've ever sent. There was a lot of interest in it um and a lot of uh, a lot of real cool feedback too uh in the in the twitter comments
0: yeah, yeah, it was really really neat to see that and I think i i I mean I know when you sent me the you know the screen capture it had about eight thousand views or something like that or impressions or whatever they call it. It was pretty
1: cool yeah, it's pretty amazing. Um, and then, and then we had a photograph sent yeah. to us. Uh, do you want to talk about that?
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, so after we, we had received Eric's and and sort of put that out, then we received, uh, a photograph from Stephen, and shows the, uh, James Webb kind of, I, I forget the interval of his, uh, of his images. Cause he sort of has them all in the same photograph and you can see that there's like a little line and then a break and it looks like a dotted line and then it gets sort of brighter. Um, towards the end, I guess it was flaring up and he had talked about the flaring and whether other people had noticed it or what I I hadn't heard of this I mean there's I think there's probably so few people that have observed or imaged it Um, I really don't know but uh, it was really neat to be able to to actually see kind of this this image of uh, you know of the James Webb I, I just think it's so cool how how these folks are are imaging and observing the telescope you know it's pretty cool
1: yeah, yeah, it's amazing. You know, about the flaring, what's really interesting about this is um you we're we're going to have um uh, Mary McIntyre on the podcast I think in February time frame. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think you'll talk about that here at some mm-hmm. point. Um so um Mary has a Twitter account as well and and does a lot of uh, uh, uh you know, sketching and and photographs and posts them on the Twitter. Um, one of the things that she imaged, um, was the James Webb space telescope. Oh, cool. But what's really cool is is in her photograph, there was like, you know, again, it's this pretty long line of light. Um, but within the line, there were like two flare ups. Um, Mm. so certainly something is going on, whether the James Webb is rotating as it travels. Mm. Uh, I'm not sure what causes that, but, uh, I definitely noticed it in her photograph as well.
0: Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I hadn't seen any other ones other than the ones that, uh, that uh, Eric had sketched and, uh, and Stefan had sent us. So yeah,
1: pretty cool. Yeah. Well, and, and it's such a rare opportunity probably to, uh, to do this. Um, I'm, I'm sure, I guess once it's in orbit, somebody will be able to pick it up uh, with a photograph, um, you know, likely with the right aperture and everything like that, but maybe not, you know, I'm not sure what its magnitude will be at that point. So it's pretty cool that people are taking advantage of the situation.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. So, um, yeah, have you been reading anything, uh, or doing any, any other astronomy related activities? I've been doing some stuff, but we'll get into that in a second. Yeah, I, I,
1: so I got uh, Hartung's Astronomical Objects uh, for Southern Telescopes.
0: Oh, yeah? What do um, you think of that?
1: I really haven't had a chance to go through it in, in much detail other than, um, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm surprised at how far north it goes. <laughs> uh, and you'd mentioned that already on yeah. the podcast. Um, but yeah, it, uh, it looks like a pretty good book. Um, what I like so far is uh, just the organization of it. Um, ju- I just like, you know, how it's all put together. But, uh, the other thing too is, and I always appreciate this in any kind of astronomical guide is, um, when they talk about like the aperture of telescope that they're using and then what they see through that aperture. Um, I think that that's pretty cool because it helps build the right expectations for astronomers and and myself yeah. included, because, you know, the view through a 60 millimeter, uh, refractor compared to a 12 inch Newtonian to, you know, whatever else you want to put in there is very different. So, um, yeah. I always appreciate when they, they talk about the aperture in conjunction with what you can see. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. That's pretty cool. I I've read through the, uh, introductory chapters on, on the different types of objects. Now those aren't written by Hartung really. They're, they're updated by, uh, by uh fru and Allen, uh who are the uh who are the people who who edited i think in the 90s when they released uh, this edition um but it makes for it makes for a good read um i mean they refer to it as being more of a of an expert or or at least an intermediate um text but you know i think with these uh these reference books they can really sort of grow with you as as you go through your observing journey
1: yeah yeah totally agree um I'm excited to get into that one for sure.
0: Yeah, um, and I've been reading the Steinitz Herschel book. I have it here. What's it called? It's called William Herschel, Discoverer of the Deep Sky. Um, yeah, so I've I've read a couple sections of that so far. I mean, it is it is huge. It's about two and a half inches thick and really heavyweight paper. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I mean, it, it's really interesting stuff. I'm I'm not like a huge William Herschel. Um, and I don't want to say fan or something like that, but, you know, I I don't have that much experience reading um, material about Herschel, but uh, you know, it seems pretty good and pretty interesting to me.
1: Yeah. Well, that's cool. I remember you saying that that book is like quite heavy (laughs) and not something you would probably be reading in bed, you know, like it's just,
0: yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: (laughs) You, you you would uh, yeah. You just wouldn't last.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. So, yeah kind of reading that for like 15 minutes every morning this week kind of thing. I think at that rate, it will probably take me until the summer to uh, to finish it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, it's how you eat an elephant.
0: <laughs> yeah. One year at a time. All right. Um, I got another soft case because I got a whole pile of astronomy gear around. It's not really a big deal. I like these newer n-e-e-w-a-r they're just cheap and expensive soft cases you can get on amazon
1: oh yeah yep.
0: super cheap and so i've been buying those uh over the past year or so just because they're uh, they're super handy to have and uh yeah they're not like a good hard case and you know you don't have to be tossing them around or anything like that but they're great just for storing just the copious amounts of uh astro gear that uh, that one might have sort of uh, laying around that perhaps their significant other isn't so happy to see laying around at all times. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. I I received an IKEA order uh mm. this week of uh, some shelving and some uh uh like drawer cabinet things uh just to help organize the the gear a little bit. So yeah yeah I'm quite pleased with that. Good. Um I got a focuser this week too I sent you a, oh oh a yeah the board focuser yeah. yeah yeah it's um so it it has m, M57 m threads on it. So yeah. it just, it connects to our little 50 millimeter Borgs and it's an inch and a quarter or Crayford focuser, uh, two speed. And, um, man, the quality of that thing is really good. Like, you know, Borg, uh, when it comes to optics, at least with their telescopes, um, very consistent, you know, what you're getting, you're getting a very good telescope. Um, and you know, that it's modular and all that stuff, but, with some of Borg's stuff, eh, the quality's not always there, in my opinion. Like, I don't know, Chris, if you've ever used a Borg eyepiece. Um, but they're like they're made of plastic. They just they're I've never been a big fan of, of okay. that part of what they do. So I wasn't sure what to expect with the focuser, but it's right up there with feather touch, uh, in my opinion. I, I have a feather oh. touch on the teleview genesis, and um it is just smooth. Um it rotates too. So like if you were to put the little 50 on a EQ mount, I guess, you know, it would, uh, you'd have the rotating focuser, which is kind of handy. Um, so yeah, I am pretty pleased with it so far. Uh, I'm hoping, uh, this week with the warmer temperatures to get it outside and actually test it out under the stars.
0: Yeah. And did you say it's one and a quarter, isn't
1: it? Yeah. 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 One and a quarter inch.
0: So you're kind of, you're a little bit limited with, you know, as far as which eyepieces you can use, you can only use the one and a quarter, and I guess the 0.96, you have some of those.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Which, you know, with the, with the little 50s, I don't actually like using the two inch gear with that mm. thing because it's just, there's no way to really balance it properly unless you have some sort of other counterweight system in play. Um, so with the inch and a quarter, it just is a little more manageable. And um, again, with the 24 millimeter pen optic, I'm getting a pretty decent field of view. Um, I still have the, the, the acromatic mini Borg, uh, set up in two inch configuration that if I really want to go rich field, I can, but for the most part, I kind of like the inch and a quarter, um, with the little telescopes. Mm -hmm. Cool. Cool.
0: Very cool. Um, anything else come in this week for you? We got another fireball report here from Jim. I can read.
1: Yeah. Let's get into that. Um, yeah. As far as, you know, my observing nil and, uh, (laughs) as far as new gear, really just that focuser.
0: Yeah. So Jim sent us an observing report of a a fireball. It was really uh, quite detailed. I didn't put it in in my show notes. We probably would have, uh, some, some time to read it. Maybe we'll, we'll dig it up here if we have uh, some time towards the end. And then, uh, he was also talking about cold weather gear and sent me a link to these, um, they're like, I think they're called Uggs sheepskin boot insoles. Anyway, they looked really awesome. I've been looking for something like that. So I I ordered a pair. They just arrived. So looking forward to uh, giving those a roll, try to keep the keep the feet warm uh when I'm observing. So that was that was pretty exciting. They were pretty inexpensive and they have some padding, have a bit of a heel issue. Um, and so I was like, oh, this is right up my alley.
1: Hmm. Yeah, very interesting. I will I'll be curious about them. Um uh, we didn't talk about it, but like a week or two ago, I think a friend of yours, uh, Blake, sent us an email about um, uh, Baffin boots. Do you remember that? Yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, anyway, based on that email, and, and my brother also has some Baffin boots, uh, I decided to pick up a pair of those. And wow, are they warm. Uh, mm. that, that might solve my cold feet
0: issues. Oh, that's a, that's great. That's really yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, we had an email from, uh, Brendan. Now I, I replied to this one and, uh, and so he, he had sent in, um, a question. We had some correspondence there, I think on Saturday night, no, it must've been Friday night or something. He said, I just started listening to your podcast with like a few binocular recommendations for backyard stargazing, uh, or even a link to an article uh, that provides us. So, so I, I did make a recommendation of going with, uh, with the Nikon action extreme, uh, eight by 40, um, and my reason for for that recommendation, Shane, is that um, with eight power, you're getting um, well. It's what that eight by forty means is it's it's eight times or eight magnification over what your unaided eye sees, and then the forty is is the binocular aperture in millimeters or the apertures because there's two barrels and each of them are are forty millimeters. So that's that's how you get the eight by forty. It used to be, you know, if you read some of the older books, ten by fifties were more commonly um, recommend it. But I, I personally came to find that um, the increase in power from 8 to 10 was negated by the additional jiggle with the, uh, the or the apparent uh, increase in, in jiggle and uh, the actual increase in jiggle. So it, it appears to be 20% more jiggly um, because you're going up 20% in, in power. And then as well, um, when you go up um, from a 40 millimeter to a 50 millimeter binocular, you're going from a binocular weighs like 25 ounces or so to a binocular that maybe weighs as much as 36 or 37 ounces. And I think those two things combine to negate the, uh, the added benefit of a, of a 10 by 50 over an eight by 40. Anyway, that that's, that's my opinion. Why I recommend the eight by forties. I also have the seven by 35s. That's what I personally use. Cause I like even a little bit lower power and smaller aperture be able to hold them longer and have just that little bit of extra wide field. But the eight by forties, certainly most of them have super wide fields as well. Whereas the 10 by fifties have, have decently wide fields, but you don't quite get as wide a field. So I think again, the eight by 40 is, I think in my opinion is, is a, uh, is a real sweet spot for a binocular recommendation Shane, but I, I don't know what your thoughts are on this. And I did send that off to, to Brendan and I think you went out and got them, but uh, maybe for other, other listeners, maybe you have some slightly different advice there.
1: No, I'm pretty much in line with you. Um, my first pair of binoculars that I bought for astronomy were ten by fifties, and I bought them based on a recommendation in um, the Backyard Observers Guide or whatever um, yeah. by D- uh, Dyer and Dickinson, which we love. Uh, I know you love that book. Yeah, I love it great, as well. Yeah, it's
0: a great book. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I think I think Terence Dickinson's uh, binocular, like recommended binocular at that time, was a ten by fifty Bushnell. So. Um, yeah, that's what I bought when I started. Yeah. yeah, I bought it and and I what you described is exactly the issue that I had with it was it was very jiggly like I couldn't keep it steady enough to make any sense of what I was seeing. Yeah. So I ended up buying an L bracket and putting it on a tripod.
0: Yeah, exactly, yeah.
1: And they work great like that, but to yeah. me if you're going to that uh, level of I don't know I wouldn't say difficulty, but that, that level of effort to observe with binoculars get like 20 by eighties or some real big ones. Right. Yeah. Um, so the 10 by fifties as a result really never got used and I sold them. Um, so now, uh, knowing what I know, I prefer, like you said, probably seven in that something in that seven to eight times magnification. I feel like I can steady that enough that I am able to observe properly. Um, the the 10 by fifties were heavier um, and I prefer a lighter binocular. Um, but one thing for me, like, so there's roof prism binoculars, which are basically like just kind of two straight tubes connected in mm-hmm. the middle and, and that's your binocular. And then there's the Poro prism, which might be more of like the classic binocular design yeah. that people think of binoculars. I prefer the, uh, the Poro design uh, just from an ergonomic standpoint. Um, like I have bigger hands and I find that the Poro prism just kind of fits my hands better. Uh, whereas the roof prisms, I'm like, I don't know. I, I feel like there's not enough binocular there for me to grab onto to, um, yeah. to really stabilize. So, so uh, I kind of like the Poro designs. And also, um, maybe one uh, optical advantage of the Poro design is, I think it's easier to manufacture a Poro binocular with with higher quality yeah. than it is the roof. Like, if you want a real good roof prism binocular, you're probably paying a lot more for that than you would for a comparable Poro.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, I think they've gotten pretty close and I know Brendan went through this exact same thing. I, I I don't know if you read that or not, but he was sort of debating whether to get, um, I think he was looking at like a Celestron DX. I think they also make like an eight by 40, but it's in the Poro design. Like you said, these kind of look like two cigars and then they, there's, there's sort of like a hinge in between, mm-hmm. um, versus the, the Poro design, which, uh, jogs out on either end. And, you know, they're, they're a little bit more substantial, you know, there's, there are some advantages. I think. I think the poro prisms are a little bit better for crossover. I think the quality has come up in recent years. That they've become more popular. It used to be that um, they 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 have to put different coatings on the poro prisms in order to get the images to merge. I think. Mm-hmm. And so there was there was a technological hurdle to kind of get them to that point. I think they've overcome that. Um, and then as well, the poro prisms typically focus closer. So somebody's sort of looking for an all in one. Um, like a crossover, they, maybe they want to do a little bit of stargazing They want to do lots of nature study, then going with something like a really good pro is uh, is a great path for that person. Um, but I, I kind of feel like in in this price range, it's really nice to get a dedicated uh, binocular. And I think like those uh, Nikon action extremes really hit a, a pretty good sweet spot between price and performance. And, you know, you, you've got a dedicated astronomy binocular then. So, you know, you can go out and buy a, a different binocular. That's what I did. I, I have daytime binoculars that, that I use. Um, I'm not going to get into those cause I'm not really like an expert in those or anything, but you know, I have have my daytime binoculars that I use for daytime nature study, or if we go for a hike or something that way, I'm not like out in the rain or, or, you know, messing with my astronomy binoculars that aren't really as easy to carry around either, you know, cause you mm-hmm. don't need as big a binocular for like that daytime nature study stuff. So, um, anyway, I, I think it's a, I think it's a good choice he made there.
1: Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, I really like, I think it's really important to have a decent set of uh, binoculars for astronomy and it, we've talked about, it makes it easier sometimes to find certain objects in the sky. Um, but what I really like about just having a good pair of binoculars is um, just about well easily the majority of the, the traveling that I've done in my life I don't take a telescope, but I always take binoculars um, because binoculars pack easier um, and like I can use them during the day for sightseeing and then I can use them at night for astronomy. So they really uh, like, at least I found that owning a a good pair of binoculars um, really had far more use than I was anticipating when I originally bought them because I originally bought them for astronomy purposes and then found I was using them way more. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Sounds good. Anything, anything else to add on the uh, binocular front there?
1: Nope. I think, yeah, we, that's it. All
0: right. Um, We've, we've had uh, quite a few listener questions and show ideas and suggestions. Um, I was talking with Mike over the break and uh, just kind of seeing if he had any, any ideas or suggestions that, uh, that he might think we, we could uh, dive into for some episodes. And he sent us a nice list of about half a dozen. He, he sent one, I I thought all the suggestions were great. There was a few that I really liked. Like one is that we haven't really gone into the binoculars, like super deep as much like parallelogram mounts and all that kind of, kind of stuff. And I I think maybe we're overdue for doing um, more of an in-depth, like more of a, like an expert binocular uh, or more advanced binocular um, episode. You know, I don't know what your thoughts are on that.
1: Yeah. There's, there's a lot we could cover there. Like you mentioned, there's the mounts. Um, there's, uh, there's different guides, you know, like books that you can use to, um, guide you through an astro, like a binocular session. There's chairs, there's, um, there's a lot of aspects too with binos that, you know, I think we've touched on briefly, um, like the fields of view and the eye relief and all that sort of thing, or even just how to focus them with the diopter and all that sort of stuff. So yeah, there's a lot of things we can cover there.
0: Yeah, and he also made a good suggestion of uh, like talking about like uh, sort of like famous astronomers, maybe not the ones that are sort of like the famous astronomers that that most regular people are going to think of. So we were thinking of like John Dobson and doing an episode maybe on John Dobson or some of the other folks that have made a pretty big impact on amateur astronomy that are, that are famous for us as amateur astronomers, maybe is, is what we were thinking. So that, that could be something we work on eventually as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. And then uh, sketching—that's sort of a, a big one. We have uh, Mary McIntyre lined up for the the end of February, and uh, I think we're going to try to line up uh, some other guests. And uh, yeah, I mean, if people have any uh, any suggestions, we're uh, yeah, we're happy to uh, happy to try to incorporate those uh, one way or another. Sometimes they, they might be an episode. Sometimes we might just deal with them um, as as part of uh, a regular episode.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So like, if if there's something that anybody listening wants us to talk about. Like if it's a question you have or a curiosity, send us an email about it and uh, we'll, we'll incorporate it into a future episode at some point or dedicate a whole episode to it. Um, you know, Chris and I have a lot of, uh, ideas that we pencil down, but it's, it's always nice to hear what other folks want to hear about. And, and often we like talking about it. So it's, uh, it's kind of a win-win.
0: Yeah. And just as we're kind of, you know, moving through time, you know, and I'm seeing these emails come in from all kinds of different people from all kinds of different places and uh, just trying to thread those into episodes. I I hope people enjoy those. Like, you know, I kind of feel like um, they're good. They're they're awesome questions. They're they're great questions that many people are going to have questions that, you know, I mean, these are real questions. It's not just you know, Shane and I kind of drumming something up, and and then trying to you know put an episode out based on um, just something we've kind of thought up. But but a lot of the stuff is sort of coming in in real time, and and you know uh, incorporating as well what what people are doing, whether it's taking some images or sketching, um, yeah, and and then just kind of wrapping those those into some episodes just to uh, just to give people that broad exposure. And so that's kind of what we're trying to do, sort of in one episode a week. And then in the other episode, we, we try to drill down a little bit more uh, specific on a, on a more narrow topic. Uh, I think that's probably a fair way of, of saying how it's sort of evolved. Shane.
1: Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yep.
0: <laughs> yeah. So that that's kind of how we do it. And hopefully, uh, hopefully people, people enjoy that. But if, but if people don't, they want us to kind of experiment with other things. We're happy to do that too, but it sort of makes it in a way, I don't want to say it makes light work because what, what allows us to do, I think is to take, Take more time with like I think sometimes people are surprised like you know I know like you will and I will we'll, we'll really take time if somebody asks us a question and you know try to uh, give them our experience anyway our our expertise if we have any and uh, and and you know pr- provide that feedback and, and guidance and then keep keeping in mind that you know we'll draw that into an episode. And to be able to kind of share um, that question, that experience, because I always kind of think that for every question, like, you know, for example, Brendan's question here, um, you know, he, he's a new listener. He just started listening to us. And we've got a lot of listeners since we ever talked about binoculars, like, you know, several hundred listeners have joined us since we last really did a real binocular episode. Now, some of them may go back and, and listen to those. But, uh, you know, for, for those that haven't, you know, like there's sort of like the Coles notes on the, the core information. Um, and I think as well, you know, uh, if people are looking to get going to get uh, to get a red flashlight and to get a copy of Terence Dickinson's Night Watch. Um, especially if you're in the Northern hemisphere, that those can be great um, devices to really get, get rolling red flashlight to preserve your night vision and a pair of eight by 40 binoculars to start learning the sky. I think that's uh that that's in a nutshell, the three things I think somebody, somebody needs to get rolling.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, for sure. Hmm.
0: And so we're rapidly approaching a hundred thousand download chain. I think we should, we should hit that this week. Yeah. Yeah. I
1: think so too, which is pretty cool. Um, Another milestone.
0: Yeah. I never thought we'd, uh, we'd get to that point. Um, You know, and, and, you know, I'm always like a little bit, you know, and I think it's a good metric. I think it's, it's great to see that we've had that many uh, podcast downloads. Um, It's hard to say how many listens that translates into. I I know that that's probably like a low number. It might be a little bit higher than that. And then, um, yeah, you know, I I think the other thing um, that I find a little bit uh, I guess a little bit more productive as, as a measure is when we hear of our own observing friends uh, listening to the podcast and sending us notes like, uh, like Clark and and Bill and uh, lots of other people will, will email us from time to time. Uh, so I know, you know, they might not listen to every episode or whatever, but they, I think they they do listen to quite a few um, you know, and, and Dave and uh, the sort of list goes on and on. Um, and it's really cool. Cause in a way, Oh no, of course, Mike Um and and in a way i mean that that's kind of what we're creating it for is is for those um for those other amateurs that are out there that we've met over the years and that that's i think kind of who we keep in mind when we create these episodes isn't
1: it Yeah, oh yeah absolutely
0: so anyway that's that's sort of something that uh that that you know i just kind of want to share with people and it's pretty cool you know people sending in observation sketches suggestions uh some people have come on as guests um you know, that, that, that's really cool because the the podcast doesn't, it doesn't make itself and we just do this for fun. So, um, by hearing from people and, and by seeing that, uh, that's sort of the people that, you know, we, we were hoping might listen to it, like our observing friends. Um, that's really cool. I know some people create podcasts and they just sort of roll it out to their friends or whatever. Um, and I think we maybe we even talked about that when we started this, but, you know, I think by kind of doing this and sort of, you know imagining that that there's other like-minded people there's a lot of people out there that are similar to to our observing friends and and maybe maybe dissimilar maybe people that aren't very similar to our observing friends at all but they've kind of come along for the ride and they reach out and and tell us stories and and send us observations that uh you know i never would would have even dreamed of i know like our minor planet episode really took off in a way that um i know surprised me and uh you know i i know we'll continue to try to provide that that kind of content in in the future based on the feedback of the listeners
1: yeah absolutely yeah
0: pretty cool uh let's see yeah i put beer in there i don't know why i put beer in there um yeah kind of getting to the end of the show notes not sure if you have anything um else to add to uh, to this episode a little bit of a ramble on about about the podcast it's kind of the time of year when we're kind of not regrouping but we're kind of grouping up our thoughts and ideas for making future episodes so sort of let, let people know where we are
1: yeah yeah, for sure. No, I, I really don't have anything else to add. Um, yeah, it's exciting. I'm looking forward to, uh, well, some warmer temperatures here for us, first of yeah. all, to observe, but uh, exactly, yeah. uh, also some of the upcoming guests and uh, yeah, just keep moving along here.
0: Yeah, good stuff. Well, thanks, Shane. And thanks so much, everybody, for listening. We do really appreciate it. Um, And if you have enjoyed it, be sure to subscribe in your podcatching software. And uh, again, we're always excited to receive uh, listener emails to actualastronomy at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, you can send in your observations or you can send in your um, suggestions for shows or or feedback. Some people have just just provided feedback. I know when we were getting going, (laughs) people are saying, Chris, you got to fix your mic. Okay, we fixed it. Good. All right. Thanks so much, Shane. Thanks,
1: Chris.